This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Kaveh Akbar, author of the novel Martyr. One of the beautiful things about fiction is that I can sort of act it out. You know, it's like this little petri dish into which, you know, I can act out realities that I haven't or can't live and put my hands into the sock puppets and make them talk to each other and and sort of play out these thought experiments. We'll be back with Kaveh Akbar after these essential words. Here's what I want to say about pitching for patrons. It's my least favorite thing to do, but it supports my most favorite thing to do. Share this podcast with the world and with you. And so I'm wondering, do you get something out of this? Do you listen more than eight times a year? Is there something of value for you in these episodes? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then why not support this content by becoming a patron of First Draft? You can do that at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Here's the common conversation I have at parties. Okay, I don't really go to parties because I'm always doing this, but this is a common conversation I have about this podcast. So why did you start this, someone asks. I don't really know. I was a radio reporter for years and getting my MFA in fiction, and I missed interviewing people. So I combined these two things and started this show. I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't have a master plan. It just seemed like a fun idea at the time. And I still don't really have a master plan, but it's been 10 years that I've been doing this. So then they asked, do you make money? And the answer is, I have some incredible patrons, but they come and go. And lately, for whatever reason, and this is really vulnerable here, more people have left than joined. I can't pretend to know why, but in exit surveys, they usually say it's for financial reasons and that they really love the content. And I get that. I really get it because there are expenses to make this podcast and financial needs to make this podcast. I will say that every hour I'm working on this is time I'm not spending at a quote unquote paying gig. Times have changed since we got our newspapers on our stoops twice a day. You know that. Our content comes from all over the place. But in this case, there isn't an AI behind this. Just an I, which is me, Mitzi, all by my lonesome, doing the research, booking the guests, reading their work, conducting the interview, uploading it into the podcast world, and then doing it again and again and again, more than 50 times in the last year. I produce one episode a week, and that is on top of all my other jobs, which is why I don't go to parties or really do anything on the weekends except for this. So if you value this podcast, please consider supporting it with a financial contribution. Membership starts at $6 a month and includes extras like writing tips, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, end of the year thank you gifts, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and more. I think in this world, we have to support what we love, and there is an energy there that comes back to us. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and become a supporter of First Draft today. 
It still doesn't make a shred of sense that I'm doing this podcast. Still, here I am after a decade. But Rumi said, set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. So I'm inviting you to warm yourself by this fire and bring your fan along. Patreon.com slash First Draft Writers. And on to the show. My guest today is Kaveh Akbar, author of two poetry collections, Pilgrim's Bell and Calling a Wolf a Wolf, in addition to a chapbook, Portrait of an Alcoholic. He is also the editor of the Penguin Book of Spiritual Verses, 110 Poets on the Divine. He lives in Iowa City. His new novel is called Martyr and tells the story of Cyrus Shams, a young man grappling with the inheritance of violence. His mother was in a commercial airplane from Tehran that was shot down by the American government. After her death, Cyrus and his father moved to the United States, where his father worked in a chicken factory. Cyrus is an addict and a poet whose obsession with martyrs leads him into the mysteries of the past and a journey to New York City to meet a terminally ill artist who is doing performance art in a Brooklyn museum. She's living in one of the galleries full-time until she dies, and she's allowing visitors to come talk to her. We began the interview with Kaveh Akbar, sharing why he moved into prose from poetry. I've thought of myself as a poet since I was a teenager and have never really deviated from that clarity. But that also means that I've been playing poetry for more than half of my life. And as I started writing some drafts, language started to accrue in chunkier pieces. And then there became something like a narrative and there became characters. And I'd written little riffs here and there before. And I had I've had these little ideas about some of these thoughts before, but never with such stamina you know the the endurance the persistence maybe is a better word of these characters and these narratives told me that there is something there and i write a ton i just i i write all the time i write by hand and um and i write pretty non-critically i just sort of hold the pen loosely and um i just like i mean it's i just like it like i like writing the way that you know, someone might like playing Call of Duty or someone might like doing crosswords or whatever, you know, I like writing. Um, and so, but I, I recognized that I was beginning to orbit some central ideas and not just ideas, but scenes. And as that happened, and I'm also during this whole process corresponding with the writer Tommy Orange, who wrote a book called There There, which is incredible. And, um, you know, he's become one of my best friends on the planet Earth. And we started trading pages every Friday. And so I had to have something to send him every week. And so that provided a kind of structural vertebra, vertebra, for um to 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 scaffold the whole project and so we traded pages and he wrote what would become the sequel prequel to there there called wandering stars which comes out in a month and is extraordinary and um a book i just i just sit at its feet you know it's it's so remarkable what he's able to do and what he can get away with i mean it, it is magic in the sense that he gets you looking one way and you miss the sleight of hand uh, that he's uh, it's, it's, it's just utterly, utterly remarkable. Um, As was there, there, of course, which, you know, it's, it's not a secret to any contemporary American reader. Um, And so he wrote that in over the course of, you know, a thousand pages and then winnowing it down. And I wrote this over the course of, I wrote Martyr, my novel over the course of many, 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 many more pages than what actually ends up in the book itself. Your main character is Cyrus. He came to America when he was a baby with his father, Ali. His mom had died in a plane crash that had, uh, it was really shot down by the Americans. It was an Iranian plane and it was shot down. So she had this senseless death. And when he came to America with his dad, his dad worked in a chicken factory in Indiana and also had a just 
just died, like with no kind of meaning to it all when Cyrus went to college in Indiana. And he's kind of at this point in his life where he is, I think he's searching for meaning, but he's searching for meaning through the idea of martyrs and having a good death. And I think he Mm -hmm. expresses many times throughout the book that he feels flat in a way that he he doesn't feel this joy. He has felt sort of a joy when he was using because he's an ex-addict, but he's kind of looking for something other than numbness and trying to collect and write these stories about martyrs, which is also kind of fraught because he's an Iranian man and, and he has some sections in there when he's saying like, am I just a dangerous man? Or how can you be just a dangerous man when you're Iranian? Like there's so much to weight to that too. But I think he's really like on a search for connection with something, but he's doing it through this idea of a martyr. That's gorgeous. Of that characterization. <laughs> so what was the what was the interest for you about this idea of a good death and martyrs and and looking at it because in the very beginning you have this beautiful epigraph that says for the martyrs who live yeah i mean there are as far as i can tell two ways to become immortal uh through art or through people talking about you after you're gone through some way that is an art and cyrus is interested in both of those martyrdom gets people talking about you after you're gone right and he's interested he's interested in you know the theological martyrs of whom we all know joan of arc hussein etc um but he's especially interested in secular martyrs you know like the tiananmen tank man or bobby sands or hypatia of alexandria you know like there there are many named throughout the book um who die for more corporeal divines like justice or love or land or um uh or rage right there there can be all sorts of divines that aren't a capital g god sitting on a cloud you know keeping a list of our good and bad deeds right um and cyrus becomes very interested in that but of course he's also aware that if he kidnaps a conservative Supreme Court justice. Um, The newspapers won't say a principled leftist American makes a sacrifice for the good of his people. It will say, you know, an Iranian terrorist kidnaps a conservative, whatever, you know. Um, And so he's conscious of the ways that his wanting to die. I mean, he's suicidally sad, but if he's going to kill himself, he doesn't want to just waste it. Right. He's like, I can, the one thing that I can give this world is a meaningful death, right? My meaningful death, right? And so he wants to figure out how to create a meaningful death ethically, responsibly. And he sets out to research how others have done that. Um, he, he is a character who's governed by this impulse to endlessly reprocess his own immediate past um, to to just work every granular micro decision into a lesion within his brain, you know, um, debating the ethics of it or the impact of it or the non-impact of it or the impotence of it. Um, he's he's uh, really dominated by these flinching anxieties. The word I think of when I think of him is saturated. He's so intense and so interested and so earnest. I think he knows himself so well and he's so concerned with these questions about greater meanings of life, but also if he's a good person that you could wring him out and he'd still be soaking wet. Yeah, I love that. That's beautiful. What brought you to this idea? What I mean, maybe there's parts of you in this, but I'm just curious about how this became your one novel that you wrote. The medium of my art is language and language as it passes out my throat through my mouth is indelibly shaped by my unprecedented experience of life on the planet Earth, right? Um, The way that I use language is 
touched by every movie that I've ever seen in the order that I've seen them, every book that I've ever read in the order that I read them, every conversation that I've ever had, all of my geographies and genealogies and histories. And, and so it's, impo- I mean, I could write as actuarial a description of a tree as I could, and it would still bear some markers of my experience, right? Um, I, if I described a tree as green, it would reveal that, you know, I can see the color green, which not every human being can, right? Um, you know, there, there's, there's, there, it's impossible to get away from autobiography. Um, and so there are, of course, symmetries between Cyrus's life and my own and Cyrus's consciousness of, and my own, many of which are deliberate and many of which I'm sure, you know, my nose is pressed up to the mural. It would take someone else who to, to point them out to me. Right. But I also feel like that's the case with Orchidette, the artist or Ali or Arash, or, you know, there are other, and Z, you know, there are other characters in the novel that have some pretty straightforward autobiographical symmetries with me as well. But, you know, I think Cyrus is maybe the most sort of superficially easy to spot because we're both youngish, Iranian American poets in recovery, right? right. So, um, just the just the boxes that one checks on the census or whatever. Uh, I think that we inhabit a lot of those same Venn diagrams. He was talking about faith and certainty and really wanting that in the beginning of the book, and then you say later that he descended from people who are comfortable sitting in uncertainty and that there's even a Sufi prayer that says, Lord, increase my bewilderment. But I think that's something that your character really deals with because he's looking for some answers, but it's also like, we don't know, like one answer just leads to another question. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I put out, an anthology called the Penguin Anthology of Spiritual Verse, 110 Poets on the Divine, that track the human project of spiritual writing from 2300 BCE to the present. And one of the through lines that I found across cultures and time is everyone sort of grappling towards that same idea of being comfortable sitting in uncertainty without groping desperately to resolve it, right? It doesn't matter if you're talking about Padakara or the Bhagavad Gita or Gilgamesh or contemporary poets like Jean Valentine or Lucille Clifton, right? Everyone is sort of orbiting that fundamental question of how do I stop struggling for clarities that will always elude me, that by necessity are ineffable or undefinable. So when you were putting that together and I haven't read it, what did you find transcendence in there? How do you mean transcendence? Either like poems or writings that offered you transcendence or that these were the vehicles for the writers in any way? Yeah, that's an interesting question and an interesting framing of transcendence. I hope that the process moved me towards something like a greater ease with my curiosities and my unknowings, a greater ease with sitting in them. I'll also say that the earliest authors of our species seem to have been writing about the same stuff that we write about today. You know, man's capacity for cruelty to man and our corrosive impact on the earth and um, exile and greed. And um, it doesn't seem that we've made much improvement spiritually as a species, you know, for all of our sort of technological advancements with every birth, it seems like we kind of just hard reset, you know, at zero spiritually. It's not like a baby comes out and is like, okay, well, Kant left things here and Wittgenstein said this. So, you know, I'll start there and, you know, whatever. And that is kind of beautiful to recognize as an artist, because it's like, if 
and Hidwana couldn't figure this out and Rumi couldn't figure this out and Sappho and Clifton and Wheatley and Dickinson and Shimborska and uh, Rapia and whoever else, if, if all of them and Lao Tzu couldn't figure this out, then Kave Akbar in Iowa is probably not going to be the one who eventually lands upon like the pristine articulation of things that will um, make all men recognize the folly of their ways and melt down every weapon and, uh, and free every sentient being from suffering. Right. You know, like there's, there's probably not, um, a, a codex available to me. Um, and if there is, you know, I'm certainly not more talented or more equipped to find it or to decode it or whatever, than were, you know, Dante and, Hafez and you know Akhmadova and these these titans. Well, I guess that's a great thing too, like about transcendence or enlightenment or even the journey that your character's going through. It's like it's all analog. There's no you can't there's no technology that's gonna speed the process for you. Yeah, which is which is a funny thing. You know, I, I teach writing and have taught writing for a long time and I am often faced with students who are remarkably adept um, at creating mature sounding, mature tasting, mature feeling writing that is just lacking that ineffable spark, you know, that the that sense of stakes, right? And so often it's because they're 22, you know, or it's because they're, you know, 25. And um, not saying that like I, at the 35, at 35, I'm like at the height of psycho-spiritual maturation, but you know, there is, there is a certain life experience missing sometimes that makes the piece feel stakesless that no amount of craft rehabilitation will be able to overcome. You know, like you could sit that poet down with Yusuf Komanyaka and Terrence Hayes and Sharon Olds and, um, Diane Seuss, you know, like the, like the living greatest English language poets that we have and no amount of craft rehabilitations can, can rehabilitate a poem that is lacking that ineffable spirit into one that has it right. Like the only thing that can provide that is, you know, having made oneself permeable to the world long enough to undergo those load bearing, um, spiritual, emotional, whatever you want to call it, psychic changes, um, and it's hard to tell that to a young person or an emerging, right. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to articulate that. Yeah. It's like, you haven't been beaten down enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, for all the feats of lyric agility, which can be quite dazzling, um, it just ends up being a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Right. Um, it just, uh, or, or when it, does try to um, gesture towards something larger. It feels sort of starchy or hollow or, you know, like, like two eight-year-olds in a trench coat, right? We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Your character, he was so interested in this idea of if he was a good person or not. I mean, it, what, it didn't dominate the book, but in the very beginning, you write that he believed he was a fundamentally bad person. And then as you went through, there were other points of the book where you, you were contemplating or he was contemplating goodness. And... I'm curious about that question for your character. What contemporary American isn't governed by that question, right? I mean, we're all wincing as we order toothpaste from Amazon or we're all, um, or as we, 
put gas into our car or whatever, you know, I'm wearing a Nike hoodie right now, fully aware of the harm that Nike has wrought across the world. Right. I mean, there is no, I'm living on stolen land, fully aware that, um, it's stolen land, right? There's no, there's no one who is not complicit in the violence of empire or no, no one that I've met anyways, right. Um, alive today. Uh, and I'm so much more endlessly more interested in art that says I'm complicit. And so are you, what do we do about it? Then in art that says I'm good, these people are bad, you know, be more like me. Right. And I think that there's a lot of, I, I think it's very soothing to, um, to metabolize that latter type of art. I think it's very soothing in that it vents a kind of neoliberal guilt. You know, if you read a book that says people like this are the bad ones, then you are tacitly a good one for reading that book, right? You're sort of like inoculating yourself against the harm that it describes, or um, you're saying, well, since I have borne witness to this testimony, um, now I am, I am exonerated from the harm that it describes, right? And, and I'm interested in what that energy might have otherwise applied, what that guilt might have otherwise applied itself towards had it not been vented in that way. That sort of reminds me or is in parallel with probably my favorite page of the book. You have the story and you're telling it from different points of view, but in between, sometimes you have a little segment of his writings and it's, you know, from the book of martyrs dot docs. And it's, you know, a, a passage that he wrote. And this is, I think my favorite. And you write, I'm setting out to write a book of elegies for people I've never met. Yes. There is an unforgivable hubris in my imagining any part of their living and presuming to write about it. There is also hubris in writing about anything else. It just seems to be what you're talking about. It's like, we, we want to look away, but how can we not look away? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, it's a very meta moment in the text, right? I am writing a book about writing a book about martyrs. Um, I, Cobb Akbar, am writing a book about writing a book about martyrs. And I, Cobb Akbar, am writing a book about 290 people who were murdered on Iran Air Flight 655 who I never knew. Right. I didn't know those people. And yet I'm telling a story about them. Uh, I'm telling a story, a fictional narrative about one of them. Right. And uh, there is an unforgivable hubris in assuming that I can do that in, in deputizing myself, the spokesperson for this experience or a spokesperson for this experience. Right. But to my mind, there's also a hubris in just not writing about that. Right. And saying like, all right, well, I'm a, I'm a writer who lives in Iowa and walks my dog every day. So I got to write about living in Iowa and walking my dog. You, you know what I mean? Like there's a hubris in being aware that this has happened and not talking about it. Right. And talking about whatever else instead, you know? And so, yeah, I, 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 it's messy. It's messy. And there is a kind of moral obviousness in a lot of zeitgeisty contemporary American art that repels me and i wanted to make something that felt messy the way that living feels to me today you know um i work with a lot of newcomers in recovery and you know there maybe maybe the sort of drunk who drinks three martini lunches and then goes home and sleeps it off and says nothing repugnant to anyone or cruel to anyone exists, you know, they seem to on Mad Men and stuff. But if such a if such a person exists, I've never met them, right? Um, the kind that I've met, including myself have been cruel and negligent of other people's interiorities and um, broadly irresponsible and crass and, um, and, and yet, I believe you're a goner until you aren't, right? I was a goner until I wasn't. And, um, and that fundamental foundational architectonic faith in rehabilitation is absolute in my life. It's, it is absolute. Um, and 
so reflecting again a kind of messiness instead of like you know captain america punching the bad guy to the moon or what i'm not a big marvel guy but you know like whatever happens you know um uh you know you have this like monolithic good guy and then this villain comes in from outer space and disrupts the status quo and then the good guy punches the villain out. i mean it's not if you want to get like real i'm like now sort of um spinning free a little bit but uh you know the past 20 years of pop culture american pop culture have been dominated by the marvel movie and in 2001 i think that was when the first lord of the rings harry potter Lord of the first Lord of the Rings movie, the first Harry Potter movie, and uh, the first Marvel Spider-Man movie all premiered, right, in 2001 or 2002, like right after 9-11 when we were really searching for um, monolithic good guys and monolithic bad guys because the reality of what had happened to us was so complicated and hard to understand granularly, although it, it wasn't actually. It's just we were being told they hated our freedom, which seems so, I mean, even I think the most willing to accept the language of empire, et cetera, among us were like, they hate our, what does that mean? You know? Um, uh, and so we got 20 years of this kind of uh, infantilization of American ethics and it has put us in the state where, I don't know. I just, I, I, I feel, I often feel very hungry for a certain kind of messiness that, literature is very, very capable of providing, but sometimes doesn't. I'm so curious what your dinner table was like when you were growing up. <laughs> really? How do you mean? Just because you're such a deep thinker and you have so much to say, I'm just wondering if your parents were fostering this intellectualism in you or if you got that stimulation from somewhere else. Yeah, my mom is the first artist I ever knew. She, I mean, she worked various and sundry jobs her whole life and never as an artist, but, but she plays with words the way that I always love to play with words. You know, the way that my brother loved to play with Legos, like me and my mom like to play with words. Right. And we would just volley them back and forth and land upon funny or defamiliarizing articulations of familiar thoughts. Right. And, and it was just language was always a site for play for us. And then I just read constantly, you know, I never really left the house. I didn't really have friends, close friends whose houses I went over to, you know, I just, but my mom, since I was five or maybe even earlier than that, would always go to the library and just bring home an arm full of books for me. And they would be, I think she would just grab them off the recently returned rack or something because it would just be the most random array of things. It would be like a book about plant cell biology and a biography of Wilbur Wright and the grapes of wrath and, you know, a John Grisham mystery and um, a children's book about pirates. And, you know, like it would just be the most random mix of books. And I would just read them all. You know, it was that was what I did that week was I would read this just completely random hodgepodge of library fare. You know, I mean, I'm being a little reductive, but not that reductive. That was basically like the first 18 years of my life, right? Is I would just, that's what I did. I just hung out with, <laughs> it sounds a little pathetic to say or whatever, but I, I really did just kind of hang out with books. I wanted to ask you about Orchida, about her art exhibit, because that was what your main character, that was kind of his North Star during the book was she was doing this art exhibit in New York called Death Speak. And it was kind of like the artist's present. It was like she was there and she was dying and she agreed she would die there and people could come and talk to her and look into her eyes. And there, I think there is something really sublime about that. And I just wanted to ask you about this art project and why you included it and why that was important for you. Yeah. So the art project preceded everything else in this novel. I have long thought about that idea, you know, that idea of performing one's own dying in an Abramovich-esque exhibition of performance art. I think that culturally, Americans in particular are very insulated from the, again, messy realities of dying. Even when we go to viewings and stuff, it tends to be that the body is made up and pumped full of preservatives and, um, and, uh, or it's, you know, the coffin is closed and we don't actually encounter the person. And, 
um, and the the utterly messy, juicy, strange work of I mean, literally juicy, like wet, like you know, sort of uh, work of dying is relegated to these people who, you know, nurses or hospice care professionals, or, you know, the people who handle the messy business of dying for us so that we don't have to look at it. Right. Um, and so this idea of someone just performing their own dying, um, in front of whoever wants to come talk to them about it has always interested me. And one of the beautiful things about fiction is that I can sort of act it out. You know, it's like this little Petri dish into which, you know, I can act out realities that I haven't or can't live and put my hands into the sock puppets and make them talk to each other and and sort of play out these thought experiments. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the idea for this art exhibition is something that I've, you know, I've thought about for a long, long time, much longer than I thought about ever writing a novel. Um, and, uh, and so when I started, you know, trying to write it down, I remember, you know, I, I write everything by hand. Uh, and there are, there are countless early drafts where I was kind of writing these scenes that were very, almost like Tuesdays with Maury or something, right? Where there's this oracular dying, you know, person giving these kind of nomic Bon Mots and uh and this sort of cipher sat across from them just there is like a vessel into which these you know oracular bits of wisdom might be deposited um and very quickly I realized that that was not a particularly narratively interesting mode for a book to you know like there's no there would be no proposal I mean you know Mitch Album can do it but I, I, that's not how I, I I didn't know how to write that kind of book um, and so, uh, I recognized that if I was going to do, if I was going to create such an exhibition in a book, I had to create a narrative superstructure around it. You know, um, I had to create a reason for that to be happening. Um, and, and then that creation took a half decade. Well, we've been talking about so many things like a meaningful death and the evils of just the empire and how hard it is to live without being a total hypocrite. But you're, I feel like your book really talks about the power of love and connection and friendship and letting down your guard and letting people in, even though it's really hard. And so it's very hopeful and loving. I mean, I appreciate your saying that. If I didn't believe that the love that I am able to give and receive made my complicitness worthwhile, then it would be unethical to remain alive. I mean, that, that is that is how just the quantitative calculation has worked out in my head. Um, and I think that that's present in the book, too. Lots of compassion. Lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that when you are, and now again, I'm speaking about myself, I don't know why I keep framing it in the second person. When I am someone who 11 years ago was pissing the bed and, you know, and stealing and, you know, doing all manner of rapscallionisms, it becomes pretty hard to sit in judgment of just about anyone else. There are certain world leaders who I think could use a run through the steps a few times or, you know, like could, could, but by and large, in terms of the people that I interact with on a day-to-day basis, you know, there's a great line in Sarah Manguso's 300 arguments where she is describing the behavior of a person she finds repellent and says it is by the grace of this behavior that this person has found it possible to continue. And I think about that all the time, right? It's almost like an incantation against judgment, right? It's like the person who's being a dick to the barista at Starbucks who every atom of my body wants to just sneer at and turn my nose up at, you know, is like, you know, uh, I don't imagine they woke up that day being really excited about being a dick to the person at Starbucks, you know, and I I mean, this is a weird example, but you understand what I'm saying. uh, It is by the grace of this behavior that this person has found it possible to continue. It's hard to continue. (laughs) I think that that's a theme in the book too. Um, It's hard to find the will, the reason, the purpose, the stamina, the endurance to continue. And it is by the grace of this behavior that this person has found it possible to continue. I think that 
that can be pretty universally applied to all of us. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am going to read a poem from Hafez. You know, Hafez is just the word Hafez in Parsi means like the memorizer, you know, um, and, and it's 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 sort of an honorific given to people who um, memorize the Quran, um, if you memorize the Quran from start to end. But just thinking about um, that, uh, that internalization of the music in that text, which is so present in the Arabic, um, and how Hafez's poetry arrives to us today and is still, you know, among the best-selling books of American poetry every year is Hafez and Rumi, right? And um, and there is something in the music of his work that survives even radical, uh, that survives even translation, right? The the radical endurance is what I was going to say, right? It's the same reason that people memorize the Psalms and not Numbers or Leviticus, right? Is because... David, who wrote most of the Psalms, was a poet and a musician, um, and he's set them to music, right? Whereas numbers is just, you understand what I'm saying, right? And so, um, yeah, so this is Hafez, who was a 14th century Persian poet, um, translated by Charles Upton. I like this translation. The morning blossoms and immediately the cloud conceals it under her veil. The cup of morning, my friends, the morning cup. The face of the tulip is withered in the grip of the frost. Wine, my friends, bring wine. From the meadow, the breeze of paradise is blowing. So drink pure wine without pause, without end. The rose has set her emerald throne in the center of the meadow. Bring wine, red as ruby, wine, red as fire. The tavern door, again, they've closed it. Open it for us, you opener of doors. It's amazing how quickly they rush to close it, and always at a time like this. Your ruby lip holds the rights of salt against those whose wounded hearts are roasted on a spit. Let the ascetic drink wine like the reveler. Let the wise fear God. If your quest is for the water of life, then drink sweet wine to the sound of the harp. If you boldly seek for life like Alexander, then take as your trophy the crimson lip of the beloved. To the memory of Saki formed like the youths of paradise, drink pure wine in the season of the rose. Don't grieve, Hafez. Your fortune has been told. Someday the beloved will lift for you a corner of the veil. Do you want to say anything more about why you chose it? I don't, I, I just, I, I, I want to let it reverberate. I think it, yeah, I just, I think it vibrates at a frequency that feels very resonant with the novel. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you liked. I have a little passage from the, from the book that I wrote, Martyr, about which we've been speaking. I've heard people say smell is the sense most attached to memory. But for me, it is always language, if language can be thought of as a sense, which of course it can be. Compared to even the dullest dog, humans can smell nothing. But compare us with what? A monkey who can say apple with her hands? And we are gods of language, everything else just chirping and burping. And how fitting, too, that our superpower as a species, the source of our divinity, stems from such a broken invention. It was invented, of course, language. The first baby didn't come out speaking Farsi or Arabic or English or anything. We invented it, this language where one man has killed Iraqi and one man has killed Iranian, and so they kill each other where one man is called an officer, so he sends other men with heads and hearts the size of his own to split open their stomachs over barbed wire. Because of language, this sound stands for that thing, that sound stands for this thing, all these invented sounds strutting around, certain as roosters. It is no wonder we got it so wrong. And do you want to say anything about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm a language artist and I don't take myself seriously at all, as we've established. I know too much about myself and too much about my history to ever be caught taking myself seriously, but I take my materials very seriously. Um, I know that they are a technology that has been used to carry out my species' greatest atrocities. And um, so I take my materials very seriously. And it's something that I think shows up in everything that I write is that skepticism of the materials, you know, the, the same, the same language that I use to tell my nieces that I love them, uh, is the language that is written on the bombs that we sell to the rest of the world. Right. Um, and that is also the language of my art, <laughs> right. Um, that is a chilling responsibility. Where do you write? Anywhere. I'm not precious. Um, I, Zbigniew of Herbert, the great post-war Polish poet, said that there are ox riders and cat riders. And um, the ox rider is the one who's just out in the fields every day, no matter how hard the soil or how rusty the plow and just diligently pulling along. And the cat rider um, patrols the house and uh, take, takes important naps and looks out the window. And then, you know, a mode of dust catches the light and they pounce on it, right? And that's like inspiration or whatever. And there's no hierarchy between the two and like any binary, it's reductive, but um, it's sort of fun to think about. And I'm very, very, very much constitutionally an ox writer who sometimes has to live a cat writer's life just because of the circumstances of my living. You know, I teach and I travel and the like, um, but uh, yeah, left to my own devices, I, I can write anywhere. And, I'm, and it's actually sort of problematic because um, I write everything by hand and because I write anywhere you know there there are um sequences that continue from one notebook onto another notebook and pages that get ripped out and then i have to try to find that or you know try to have to put it together after the fact and um it can be you know <laughs> uh i joked once with my spouse page that uh i, I i'm just sort of uh guaranteeing i'll never have like a posthumous biographer <laughs> or anything like that because you know my it's just I even I can barely figure out like which paper is talking to which paper and which notebook starts where and goes into which other notebook, you know, and so no one else would ever be able to. So, um, yeah. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, I take my dog to the dog park every day, every day of his life that he's ever been with us. And I've been home. He's gone to the dog park, even in these like hyper, hyper cold with uh, negative wind chill days. We just spend 10 or 15 minutes these days. And he's, he, he would spend more if I let him, but, um, but, uh, on normal days where it's bearable, you know, we'll walk around for two or three hours and I just listen to, um, audio books or, listen to music or listen to nothing. And we just walk and walk, you know, some people do yoga or meditate or whatever. And I just walk the dog park with Galilee. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Either my spouse, Transcendent American poet Paige Lewis, or my friend, Transcendent American prose stylist Tommy Orange. How have you dealt with rejection? I have never faltered from the clarity that I want to be a writer, right? And so... Rejection has always arrived as a useful data point. And, um, but so has acceptance, you know, um, uh, there, there are data points on the large scatter plot of my life. Um, uh, neither rejection nor acceptance has ever really spun my compass too much from just the, the fact that having written gets me higher today than anything else left available to me. Um, having written, I can get, I can get really, really high off of having written, um, and it lasts a really long time and it's clean burning, you know? And so, um, yeah, rejection, acceptance are all just data points. Um, uh, a certain amount of acceptance is necessary to allow myself to continue keeping my cats and cat litter and my dog and the good expensive kibble from the vet. But, you know, um, yeah, I think that we're, we're fine in those arenas for the time being. And what is your favorite word? To avoid being overly precious about it, I'm going to say the first one that popped into my head, which was among, um, 
Uh, I think it just feels sort of uh, percussive in a way without being staccato, which is an interesting combination. Um, like it's it's sort of uh, it feels like the leather stretched over a drum head, you know, a monk, right? Um, and it's almost onomatopoeic in that way too, you know, um, amongness being this kind of taut, uh, fabric holding together, holding some more than one number of individuals together. Right. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so grateful. And thank you for this beautiful book. Yeah. Thank you, Mitzi. Thank you so much for spending this good and generous time with it and for um and for spending this good and generous time with me today it's 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 not lost on me what uh what a gift that is if you like today's show with kave akbar author of the novel martyr check out my first interview with sarah manguso who we mentioned during our conversation manguso and i talked about her non-fiction book 300 arguments how structure helped her conceive of the book and curating stimulation You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 440 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Diane Seuss, Deborah Spark, and Kylie Reed. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.